We're going to talk some Premier League now. Uh, big win for Liverpool this morning over Leeds United. Not that it really changes the fortunes of their season, but the well, the battle is right at the top uh, between Arsenal and Man City and also down the bottom in the relegation zone. So a uh, good friend of the show. We get him on all the time to talk uh, Premier League and football. He uh, is a commentator for TalkSport up in the UK as well as Sirius XM. It is Tom Reedy. Uh, g'day, Tom. Welcome in. Thanks for having me on the show. Good to chat to you. Now, we've got a saying uh, down here in New Zealand. I'm not sure if uh, if this is international, if you've heard it over there. It's called squeaky bum time. And uh, I think <laughs> I think for Arsenal fans, it's squeaky bum time, isn't it? They're only uh, four points ahead of City. Uh, City with the game in hand. And of course, they meet next week. I, know, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, Tom. Every game's an important game. But how massive was was drawing with uh, with your West Ham yesterday morning for them? Well, firstly, on squeaky bum time, what you do after the program is your business and would be happy <laughs> if you could keep it off the air. Um, secondly, look, I don't think there's a great deal of need for Arsenal fans to be feeling squeaky bum time because they're not going to win the Premier League. They're just they're not going to win the Premier League. There's, there's no reason to, to be, be too upset about it, as Kodo Torre didn't famously say, because they're taking on a country. Yeah, they're, they're taking on a country and the wealth of a country, a sovereign wealth fund, to try and win the Premier League. Now, it, has it been brilliant? Absolutely. Has it been enthralling? Yes, it has. And they're going to get 90 points or more this season. What a phenomenal achievement and improvement to what was expected and what's been achieved in recent years. That all being said, they're going to win it. They're not going to win it because they can't, call upon Erling Haaland, um, a, a goal-scoring monster. They don't have Pep Guardiola. They don't have the pedigree of, of winning trophies going down the, the final furlong of a season, to mix my, my sporting metaphors, um, and deliver the results when required. And those two most recent games for Arsenal, Liverpool away, about as tough as an away trip as you're going to get in English football. And... Um, they didn't come through that test. The West Ham away one was slightly different because West Ham have been quite poor this season, but actually only one loss this calendar year at home makes it a tougher proposition than it kind of looked on paper. And West Ham are in a position where they're a couple of results away from saving their Premier League season, not being relegated, and then being able to focus on maybe winning a European trophy. So they go to West Ham at a very acute moment of that club's crisis and they raised their game as, as that went on. And Arsenal, in the end, were lucky to hold on and get a draw out of it. So, look, next week is a decider. If Arsenal can beat them, they go into it as favourites across the last six, seven games. But I just don't see it. I mean, I just... Manchester City have got everything. They have everything in the locker. To beat them, you've got to be phenomenal. And phenomenal would mean winning at Anfield, winning at West Ham. And Arsenal failed to do so. Mm. Tom, is it? Um, it's sort of interesting there, just the way you, you sort of started that answer. Is it a little bit depressing for, for for football fans in the UK that you know you've just got this club that is just so far and away ahead of everyone else that even when a club is leading and having a great season, like you said, no one still gives them the chance. Is that a little bit depressing as a football fan? Yes, it is. I mean, look, I one of the biggest issues in our society in general, the West as a culture, is that. We are capitalist countries, but we've been engrossed by the concept of hyper-capitalism. And that's led to the Premier League, which is an incredible capitalist success internationally. We've opened it up to the hyper-capitalism of sovereign wealth funds. And 
we've allowed that to skew the game ever more, more than it ever was. It, in one way, it's been great to see these usurpers like Chelsea and Man City upset the apple cart of those wealth hoarders from 92 to 2005. You know, Man United and Arsenal won the league in those years. They had the most money. But it stopped there being any story to compete with that other than either old money or more sovereign wealth funds. So, yes, it is, it is frustrating in a way. Um, and all we're going to be able to have really in, in the coming years is sovereign wealth fund versus country to try and win trophies in the Premier League. But mm. we're, we're too far down that route to complain now. I would love to see Arsenal win the league because that just means an American billionaire would win it as opposed to a sovereign <laughs> wealth fund. But is that something to, to cling on to? I don't know if it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, money aside... Um in terms of the players, I mean, Erling Haaland, you did mention, and, and what a um, superstar he is, what a season he's having. I think I saw somewhere that he's now tied level for with Ronaldo for goals in a single season. Uh, and the comparisons, of course, are being made. How do you sort of um, view Erling Haaland? Still young in his career. Where, where do you think he's sort of going to finish up in terms of the great strikers? He, he's more of a finisher as opposed to, you know, a Ronaldo who, who was a dribbler and who could open up a game completely and win a game for a team. Where's Erling Haaland's uh, sort of legacy going to sit, do you think? I think with Erling Haaland, it makes me think of a lot of someone that would stay in the Continental Hotel in the John Wick film series. <laughs> he seems like somebody, if I need somebody assassinated, he's the kind of guy that I would go to, metaphorically, of course, because, <laughs> because he's just so cool. He's just so in control of every situation. I've never seen him... Uh, overreact. I've never seen him lose his call. Cool. I've never seen him be anything other than in control at the moment. Now, he is not an all-round great footballer like, you know, Kevin De Bruyne is his teammate or Cristiano Ronaldo or original Ronaldo. You know, these guys were and are all-round complete players, but they never had the dead-eyed assassin nature of Erling Haaland. And he just there are great players out there, great goal scorers, who even in front of goal at times of acute crisis have a, a moment of, of, of a lack of confidence or they muff their, their lines at the vital moment and then you wonder what's going to happen next up. You don't wonder about that with him. I feel like if he even gets a negative, I feel like he's able to just brush it off. You know, people can't brush off their disappointments in life. Erling Haaland is just able to do so mm. and take the next chance when it comes. I think his mentality is something we've never seen before. It's not his talent, even though that is incredible. It's his mentality, which is different to anything else we have ever seen before. And that's what separates him from players who are technically better, more complete, more versatile. And what I love about him as well is that I don't think he'll be at Manchester City forever. He's almost taken a tour of the biggest clubs in European football. He'll do a few years and go to Real Madrid, do a few years there, go to maybe Bayern Munich, do a few years there, go to Paris Saint-Germain a few years there, go to wherever else he wants to go. Because he just sort of thinks, I've done it all here, what else is there to achieve? And in two years' time, he may have done it all at Manchester City and go somewhere else to do it. He could be someone that we could all love because he doesn't stay long enough at our rivals for us to hate him. Mm. Yeah, all right. Well, just uh, a little bit further down the ladder, uh, United in third, Newcastle in fourth. Now, Newcastle, I guess, playing into that mould of Man City, they're a couple of years behind, of course, but they're sitting in fourth now, probably going to cling on to a Champions League spot. What? How long do you think it's going to be before Newcastle, you know, sort of draw level with Man City in terms of challenging for, for, for the first spot? 
Well, I can tell you almost precisely. It will take two more years. And it will take two more years because the financial fair play model and the sustainability Premier League rules work in three-year cycles. And you can only grow by X amount of percentage on your wage bill over that three-year cycle. And to be able to spend more, you've got to do better. And if they qualify for the Champions League this season, which at the moment they are likely to do, that's a huge influx of cash just for getting those gimme games in the group stage, which you can then reinvest without punishment the next year and the year afterwards. It's something that Chelsea might fall foul of in a couple of years' time if they fail to qualify for the Champions League next year as they're going to this year. Um, so they currently are trying to build the club slightly slower so as to not then fall foul of these financial fair play rules down the line. Already and quite rightly, we're going to criticise Newcastle for being owned by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, even though they can pretend as much as they like that they're not, they are, uh, and um, they don't want to then have the further allegations thrown at them of whatever it be, corruption or financial mismanagement or breaching the rules or whatever. All these things are being thrown at Manchester City now. Um, because essentially Newcastle United is a sports-washing product from Mohammed bin Salman and the Public Investment Fund. And mm. so they don't want all that. They want to try and give the appearance of following the rules so when they gradually get to success, they aren't then dragged through the mud in the same way that Man City currently are uh, with the investigations and allegations that are going on about them. So it'll be two more years. It's two years after their first Champions League qualification, which looks like being this season. Um and I expect them within 18 months to be trying to buy players for 80 to 120 million pounds. Mm. Uh, and it'll be them against another sovereign wealth fund, against another sovereign wealth fund, trying to buy the best players in the world. I don't think it's the best thing for competition. I don't think it's the best thing for um, fairness in our game. And it's certainly not the best thing for anyone who's not owned by a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, but it certainly might be interesting at the top of the Premier League when it's Saudi Arabia uh, against Abu Dhabi. Um, with Man City against Newcastle competing for all that that money. But look, this year Newcastle haven't quite been that. They've been operating on a quite regular Premier League budget for the want of a better expression. Um, You know, Nick Pope is not someone that you'd be picking out as the best goalkeeper in the country. Sven Botman, good money, but how good is he? You know, you go through the list of players they bought. Very good players, but Alexander Isak is not Pete Cristiano Ronaldo. They've picked sensible players that fit their system, that play for that manager, and part of a quite competent-looking slow build. Mm. If you are a new owner coming into a new club with unlimited money, you follow what the Public Investment Fund have done, and you don't do what Todd Bowley has done at Chelsea. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, Chelsea. Let's talk about the teams that are hovering around the middle. Um, Chelsea, what, what's the plan, um, Tom? When you look at it um, from the outside in, it's, it in a way looks like it just lacks direction. It seems like they're just throwing money at, at the wrong players. Um, and obviously they brought Frank Lampard back in as an interim manager. What what actually is the plan for Chelsea to, to get out of where they are? I love how you think I can answer that. I, re- <laughs> I really I admire how much you admire my ability <laughs> to answer that question. Um, look, there, there, there isn't a plan, okay? There is no short-term, medium-term, or long-term strategy at Chelsea. Todd Bowley came in on a sea of goodwill with a whole bunch of cash behind him and thought this was like American sport. It was like American sport. We give the best contracts to people I'm being told are the best players and we're going to be the best. And that's not how it works in football. It doesn't work that way because, again, you're up against these huge wealth funds you can't really compete against. You've got to be shrewder. You've got to be quicker. 
You've got to be planning for the long term, the type of players you want. You've got to be thinking two, three, four managers down the line. You've got to be thinking all of this. And he is a novice in this industry. And last summer, um, he was the biggest pigeon in football. He's wandering around the carnival and there's a carny there with the ring toss and he's looking at someone who can get as much money out of that person as possible. And every agent in the country drew Todd Bowley to their ring toss and he went there, gave him all that money and he kept throwing it at his grandfather clock. It's not going over the top, but my throw is perfect. What's going on? I should be winning a teddy by now. And in the end, he bought Mikhailo Mudrik for £100 million. You know, this is what happened. Agents saw a pigeon in Todd Bowley and they took him for certainly everything they could get. And now you've got this weird thing of they've got too many players. There's an incredible story I read a couple of weeks ago about there's so many players in training. Some of them are getting changed in the corridor because they can't fit in the changing room. There's no lockers available. Wow. You know, there's no direction to the players they bought in. The money they've spent up front, even though they've got these long-term contracts that will be amortized over time, that is still going to hurt them financially if they don't qualify for top-level European football. The loss can be anywhere between 60 to £200 million, pounds, depending on how far you go, what you win, the commercial contracts that come from it. So losing out on that income, that loses you the ability to spend big on wages um, according to various financial fair play and sustainability rules. So all sorts of issues there. And then you go with the manager. Thomas took a one on the Champions League. Bowie didn't like him, even though he'd signed him a bunch of players going into the end of the transfer window last summer. He then brings Graham Potter in, and the Potter thing only made sense if he was genuinely, genuinely giving this guy season after season after season to build a club. Evidently, that's not the case, because he sacked him a couple of weeks ago after. To be fair, another debacle performance against Aston Villa. But then he brings in Frank Lampard, and I am convinced that when we saw Frank Lampard in the stands at that Liverpool game where Bruno was temporary manager... I actually think Todd Bowley bumped into him in the corridor and said, oh, actually, you could do this, couldn't you, Frank? Didn't you work here before? <laughs> I, I, I genuinely think that's what happened because there's no other scenario where Frank Lampard comes back in as Chelsea manager. It can only be that he's given up on his own managerial career yeah. and wants to give it another go at Chelsea before becoming an ambassador or a media guy or whatever he wants to be because no serious person who wanted to be a serious manager would have taken that, that job at Chelsea as a figurehead. Mm. So... All sorts of problems. None of it makes sense. There is no strategy. At some point, you've got to believe it will come good because it's still a very attractive job. If you could be a manager and the owner says, how much money do you want and what players do you want? As long as the manager and his people get to pick the players and have more of a say in it, it's going to be a success at some point. I think Julian Nagelsmann would be great at it. Thomas Tuchel, if they ever brought him back post Bayern, would do great at it. You know, Luis Enrique being listed as, as someone who might take the job. It, you know, it, it's endless. The amount of people that could do a good job at that club. Mm. The trouble is, Potter wasn't the right man, and Frank Lampard's not in the right job. Uh, we'll talk about Liverpool. I know we're hitting all the big clubs here. We t- we'll talk about some of the others, but Liverpool, uh, who a big win over uh, over Leeds. Uh, well, about to have a big win over Leeds here, but they still sit in the middle of the table. That's probably a question you've been asked quite a lot, Tom. But the I guess the honeymoon, if you can call it that, of of Jurgen Klopp is is that over? Does he is he going to last? Are, are the fans starting to turn a little bit, or does does he still have sort of full support of the club and the fan base? No, there's there's no question of any support for Jurgen Klopp considering what he's been able to deliver during his time there. But look, I, I, I think with, with Jurgen Klopp, the issue is, number one, he builds teams on momentum and they've not been able to get that momentum going all season. With his teams historically, in Liverpool and Dortmund, two wins leads to five wins leads to eight wins. It's all about 
the mindset within that club set by this incredibly strong-willed manager. He's not the most flexible tactician, but he can get the players believing they can climb Mount Everest, run through walls, walk through fire. That's what he gets them to believe. And when he's got that, he can harness that lightning and he can get a season of results out of it. This season, they've not been able to get going. The loss of Sadio Mane has been massive. The lack of quality in midfield in big games has been telling. There's a need for massive investment in that area. And the fact that Virgil van Dijk is not the player he was two years ago. He can't cover everybody's jobs now. He can't cover the issues that Alexander-Arnold and Matip have because he's not quite got what he had a couple of years ago when he used to attack. He now stands off and reads the game. And that's led to issues defensively. It's all quite well documented what's gone wrong with Liverpool. And with Jurgen Klopp, it's about what the next rebuild is. This is the the third team he would have built at Liverpool during his eighth year next year. Um, And the question really isn't whether they want to sack him. The question is whether he is up for it. And it's worth noting, too, this is one of the most successful managers in modern European football. And he's never been backed by a massive sovereign wealth fund or a massive amount of money. Yes, Liverpool invested massively in Alisson and Van Dijk, which pushed them over the line. But they don't have £100 million to toss off on their second-choice left winger like Man City did last year in Jack Grealish, who's now a very important player to them. But they could waste £100 million on someone last year. They didn't actually need, and they made no material impact in them being champions. Liverpool can't do that. So it's, I think, maybe a question of whether Klopp wants to stay, whether someone else would like Jurgen Klopp to be their manager, uh, and whether Liverpool can match the ambitions that Jurgen Klopp, understandably, would have. Mm. All right, well, down the bottom, um, and, you know, such as the, the Premier League now with, with only a, a limited amount of clubs vying for the top spot, the relegation battle becomes almost the most interesting part. So we've got uh, four or five teams down the bottom that are sort of battling it out, but the more interesting for me is that you've got two very big clubs in, in Everton and Leicester City, and, of course, Leicester City has been out of the Premier League before, but most fans look back to winning the title only seven or eight years ago, now in a relegation battle alongside Everton. I mean, I find it interesting, Tom, that, that clubs of that sort of size and magnitude can find themselves down there, but there they are. Yeah, look, I mean, if, if anyone's looking at who's going to go down this season, 36 points is the line. So anyone who gets 36 points or above, they stay in the Premier League. That's borne out by 10 years of statistics. And um, actually, as the trend goes on, it becomes lower. So you're edging more towards 35 points now on the average than 36. But 36 is the line to stay safe in the Premier League. So Crystal Palace have already got it. They are safe. Wolves are two points short. They're going to get it. They are safe. Bournemouth, I think, are two points short, three points short following their victory at Tottenham this weekend. They're one win away from getting it. West Ham are four or five points short. They've got eight games left. I would back West Ham to get six to seven points in that run and be safe. Um, and Bournemouth play West Ham on Sunday this week. That's going to be a huge game. The winner, I think, can almost start planning for next season. Bournemouth definitely can, I think, if they win. You then look at those below that group. And I, I wouldn't discount West Ham as yet, but I just think they've just got far too much quality to stay in the league. And I think that being in the Conference League and the hangover of two good seasons has put them into the position they're in. I do think they will come good enough to get enough points. Leeds United, defensively poor. And offensively, they've got a bunch of really young, exciting players. But do you want a bunch of 20-year-olds trying to score the goals in high-pressure games to keep you in the league? I don't know. That's not usually what people do. Question marks there. I think you're looking at um, at Everton. Everton have been circling the plug hole now for years and years and years. Sutherland did it recently. 
Villa did it recently. Eventually, you've got to feel they will go because they've got so much wrong for such a long period of time. They brought in a real meat and potatoes manager who got a couple of results early doors, but we might be past the era of the beep test and corner kicks, which is basically Sean Dyche's entire tactical repertoire. That could be an issue. Plus, can't see those teams in that bottom five getting above 34 points, which for some of them, for some of them, they're going to need two, maybe three wins. They've got five or six wins all season. To do that now would be extraordinary. Um, and they're not all going to do it, that's for sure. Plus, it's weird, but quite a lot of these teams play each other over the next few weeks. So whatever happens, uh, they're all going to be taking points off each other. So it's not likely to be a high tally. Yeah, there's nothing like a team uh, you know, celebrating as if they won the Cup when they've just finished 17th. But uh, <laughs> that might be what we see over the next few weeks. Tom, uh, always appreciate jumping on, my friend. Your analysis is the best in the biz. And uh, I hope uh, for your own mental health, West Ham, get a couple more wins. Stay out of that relegation zone, mate. Thanks heaps for jumping on. And win the Conference League, of course. Don't forget that. <laughs> Thanks heaps, Tom, mate. Really appreciate it. Cheers, mate.